Yorma Kalkinen here, and here's some more from Country Joe McDonald. Yes, there are people by the hundreds of thousands come out to California looking for a job of work, a better way of life, and a hot meal. When they got to California, they found out what most of the people in California already knew. If you ain't got the money, if you ain't got the cash, you ain't got the bucks, you ain't got the paper, you ain't got the do-re-mi, California can be a pretty unfriendly place. Well, lots of folks back east, they say, are leaving their homes every day, hitting that hot old dusty way, the California line. Across the desert sands they roll, getting out of the old dust bowl. Think they're heading for Chicago, but this is what they find. Police at the port of entry say, you're number 14,000 for the day. And if you ain't got the do-re me, folks, if you ain't got the do-re me, you better go back to beautiful Texas, Oklahoma, Kansas, Georgia, Tennessee. California is a garden of Eden. A paradise to live in and to see But believe it or not You won't find it so hot If you ain't got the do-re-mi Now you might have a house or a farm That can't do nobody no harm Take your vacations By the mountains or the sea Don't trade your cow for a car you better stay right where you are You better take this little tip from me Cause I look through the want ads every day Headlines on the papers always say If you ain't got the do-re-mi folks If you ain't got the do-re-mi You better go back to beautiful Texas Oklahoma, Kansas, Georgia, Tennessee California is a garden of Eden A paradise living and to see But believe it or not You won't find it so hard If you ain't got to go me There's an old American folk song called Going Down the Road Feeling Bad. Lots of people have sung it over the years, and the Carter family had a million-selling hit on it on a record. And uh, Woody Guthrie and a member of the folk song group The Weavers, Lee Hayes, wrote a Dust Bowl version of it called Blowing Down the Old Dusty Road. I've asked, added a few little twists and turns to it myself. Blowing Down the Old Dusty Road Feeling Bad. <laughs> I'm blowing down the old dusty road I said I'm blowing down the old dusty road I'm blowing down the old dusty road Good God, ain't gonna be treated this way I'm going where the dust storms never blow I 
said, I'm going where the dust storms never blow. I said, I'm going where the dust storms never blow. Good God, I ain't gonna be treated this way. You know I'm a blowing down, I'm blowing down the old dusty road. I said, I'm blowing down the old dusty road. I said, I'm a blowing down the old dusty road. Good God, I ain't gonna be treated this way. We're getting out of the road now. I'm going where the water tastes like water. I'm going where the water tastes like water. I'm going where the water tastes like water. Good God, I ain't gonna be treated this way. You know I'm a blowing down, I'm blowing down the old dusty road. I said I'm blowing down the old dusty road. I said I'm blowing down the old dusty road. Good God, I ain't gonna be treated this way. I said I'm going where the beach ain't covered with oil. I said I'm going where those oil wells don't explode. I said I'm going where those new plants don't melt down. Good God, I ain't gonna be treated this way. You know I'm a blowing down, I'm blowing down the old dusty road. I said I'm blowing down the old dusty road. I said I'm blowing down the old dusty road. Good God, I ain't gonna be treated this way. Well, 2001, when I was digging through my archives looking for Woody Guthrie stuff, I found a book uh, that was reprints of a column that Woody Guthrie wrote for the People's World Communist newspaper out of San Francisco from 1939 to 1940. His column was called Woody Says, and I'm going to read a little bit from a column where he's talking about automobiles. In this particular column, Woody talks about his wife and two daughters. Woody was married three times. He's talking about his first wife in this particular column. There were three children from that marriage, and they lived mostly in Texas and in California. They got divorced when he went out to the East Coast. He fell in love with Marjorie Mazia, and Marjorie and him got married. They had four children, Kathy, Arlo, Nora, and Jody. Kathy died in a fire in their apartment when she was a little girl. The wiring on the radio was faulty, caught the apartment on fire. She sustained injuries that caused her to die in the hospital pretty quick after that. Fire played an important and terrible role in Woody Guthrie's life. His own sister stayed home from school one day in their house in Texas to help their mom around the house. Uh, and they had an old wood-burning stove, and her clothes caught on fire. And she ran around and around. Before they could put that fire out, she sustained injuries, caused her to die a couple days after that. Um, his mom caught the house in Texas on fire on purpose or an accident. Nobody knows for sure, but it burnt right to the ground. And his father caught himself on fire with some gasoline, burned his body up pretty bad, his arm and his hand so bad it didn't work properly after that. And later on in life, Woody Guthrie caught him, his own arm on, on fire with some gasoline. 
Marjorie and him got divorced. Woody went out to California and in Topanga Canyon. He fell in love uh, one more time, got married one more time. There's one more child from that marriage. Arlo has told me that from time to time, people would pop up around the country saying they were Woody Guthrie kids also. <laughs> so he was a pretty prolific guy in a lot of different ways. So here's from his column what he says that he wrote for the People's World newspaper out of San Francisco, talking about automobiles. A true story, my wife, the two daughters, and myself bought a USED car not long ago. It cost us $45, and the finance charges, etc. You know the old story, run the price up to $61. The first week we had it, the unusual joint fell out of it. We put in a new outfit. The battery wouldn't turn a jumping bean over. We bought a new one for $10. To pour oil in it was just like throwing oil out of a window. It used the court every time it backfired, and two when it ran front ways. We all jumped in it and started down to San Diego. We got almost to Oceanside, 93 miles, and it throwed three rods around the block, two across the street. Nine up on top of a house, four through the engine head, and one through the radiator. We were stranded, refugees again. We had to sleep all night in a depot and called some friends over the phone wires to come and get us. I told the car company where the wreck was and to go and get it. They went down and got it, resold it again for $45, and sent me a bill for $6. I said, I'm running for governor on the Chinese laundry ticket, and when I get elected, I'll pay you the $6. Shucks, I didn't know there was so much payoff to a gallon of gas. I'm putting forth a scientific observation which came along after several years of hard study. In my opinion, no two automobiles can occupy the same space at the same time. <laughs> Although this has been tried over and over <laughs> many, many times, it has brought considerable damage to the automobiles, sometimes making them completely unfit for use. <laughs> when I got out of the United States Navy and moved back to California, my sister and all of her friends were listening to Folk music. The folk music boom was on big time. I started going to Los Angeles State College for a little bit. They had a folk song club there, and I started uh, joined the folk song club. There was a lot of folk song and that type magazines around that particular time. Sing Out Magazine, Boston Broadside, New York Broadside, Little Sandy Review. And I started my own magazine, and I wrote to uh, Malvina Reynolds and to Pete Seeger and asked them if they'd be advisors on my magazine, and they said they'd be glad to do that. So when I dropped out of college in 65, moved up to Berkeley, California, I used to go and visit with Malvina Reynolds on Parker Street where she lived. She was called the Muse on Parker Street because she was a housewife, but she was a singer and a songwriter too, and she had quite a successful career writing songs and singing them and doing concerts and making albums. Her most uh, well-known song is probably Little Boxes about how all the uh, houses in Daly City in the San Francisco Bay Area look alike and how the people all seem to be alike too. That particular song has become the theme song for a TV show that's been on for about six years now called Weeds about a suburban housewife who makes her living selling marijuana. 
And I'm sure that uh, Malvina would get a big kick out of that if she was alive today. And I'm sure her daughter Nancy Schimmel enjoys the royalty checks. <laughs> so, uh, you know, in, in, uh, a few years ago, I was riding around Detroit City with some friends of mine. And we were on the freeway, throughway system there, whatever. And they said, Joe, you know, we're, we're, right now we're driving on the first one-mile stretch of highway that was ever built just for cars. It was built by Henry Ford, and it was made out of wood. And I thought, man alive, talk about an idea that caught on. So in the middle of the 70s, I was recording for Fantasy Records in Berkeley, and I asked Malvina to join in and sing along on a Woody Guthrie song I used to sing to my kids when they were in nursery school, a kid song that he wrote called Let's Go Riding in the Car, Car. And I'm going to play that version for you now, of the version of Woody Guthrie's song, Let's Go Riding in the Car, Car, that Malvina and I sang that day. Let's go riding in the car, car. Let's go riding in the car, car. Let's go riding in the car, car. Let's go riding in the car. And the door goes slam, slam. The door goes slam, slam. The door goes slam, slam. Let's go riding in the car. Let's go riding in the car, car. Let's go riding in the car, car. Let's go riding in the car, car. Let's go riding in the car. And the horn goes beep, beep. The horn goes beep, beep. The horn goes beep. Let's go riding in the car. Let's go riding in the car, car. Let's go riding in the car, car. Let's go riding in the car, car. Let's go riding in the car. And the seatbelt goes click, click. The seatbelt goes click, click. The seatbelt goes click. Click, let's go riding in the car. Oh, let's go riding in the car, car. Let's go riding in the car, car. Let's go riding in the car, car. Let's go riding in the car. And the engine goes brum, brum, and the engine goes brum, brum, and the engine goes brum, <coughs> brum. Let's go riding in the car. Let's go riding in the car, car. Let's go riding in the car. Let's go. <coughs> oh, excuse me, I just got exhausted. This is live from your McCalkinen's Fur Peace Ranch. This concert featuring Country Joe McDonald, recorded June 16th, 2012. Your McCalkinen here, and here's some more from Country Joe McDonald. Well, in 2001, when I was thinking about putting this thing together and thinking about Woody Guthrie, I remembered that I had seen some copies of letters, reprints of letters that Malvina Reynolds had written to Woody Guthrie when he was in the hospital. The reason he was in the hospital was he inherited a disease from his mother called Huntington's chorea or Huntington's disease. It is a fatal disease, a deterioration of the nervous system. There is no cure for it even today. And um, it's passed on from parent to child, but not every child gets it. But he did get it from his mother. His mother died in an insane asylum in Texas, of Huntington's disease. 
because they didn't know how to diagnose it back in those days. But in 1954, Woody manifested symptoms of Huntington's which were severe enough for them to determine to put him in the hospital, not only for his own good, but for the good of the people around him. He, was, he remained in the hospital for the rest of his life, uh, from 1954 to 1967, the summer of love, when he died uh, of Huntington's disease. So people in the progressive songwriting community heard that he was in the hospital, and Melvin Reynolds decided to uh, send him a box of cookies and correspond with him, and uh, he began to correspond with her. I had seen copies of those letters because when I first came to Berkeley in 1965, I used to work in a guitar shop, one of the very first guitar shops that catered to the new uh, generation of uh, folk song steel string guitar players and, and such, uh, run by a couple named John and Deirdre Lundberg, who moved from the Midwest out to Berkeley and started a shop called Fretted Instruments. And when Deirdre died, I inherited all the... Uh, folk song posters and um, the uh, magazines and such that were in the shop. And I later donated the magazines to the Cleveland Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, where they are today. And um, so I went digging around in my closet, and I did find those, uh, the Little Sandy Review. It was a little, a little magazine, mimeographed, about six inches tall, four inches wide, stapled together by two guys who did nothing but just review folk song albums that were coming out at that particular time. One of the guys became a well-known uh, pop music critic, and he passed away a couple years ago. The Rolling Stone had a nice obituary about his life uh, when he died. But uh, there, there they were, uh, the letters that she had submitted, and I decided that she thought they were profound and entertaining, and I thought they were too, and I included them in my uh, tribute. The first letter is dated May 16, 1955, from Malvina Reynolds in Berkeley to Woody Guthrie in Brooklyn, New York, to the, in the hospital, uh, suffering from Huntington's disease. May 16, 1955. Dear Woody, as soon as I get over this cold, I will make you some cookies. If there's one thing I'm famous for besides writing songs about overalls and little girls, it is my ginger currant cookies. They not only taste very good, but they are very healthful, being full of vitamins and minerals and all disguised as delicious flavors. If you eat them, I'm sure you'll get well at once. Your letter was exasperating and frustrating. Every time I got to the exciting part, there was a word scrawled, so I couldn't make it out. And I'm a pretty good scrawl reader. My husband's handwriting is absolutely antisocial. My husband, name of Bud, is a carpenter when he works, a very fine guy, but taciturn, and that means he doesn't talk very much. And I wish some more of my friends were afflicted with that sickness. <laughs> Many of them do not know the value of silence, which is some of the finest music in the world. Don't tell me you have to scrawl. In important places, as in addressing my letter or telling me you would appreciate some self-opening dates, your handwriting is as clear as can be. So please write me your letter all over again. And if it isn't the same letter, at least be sure it's one I can read the most of. This one will keep me out of mischief for the next 10 years. And that's too bad I get into some of the best mischief you ever saw. His answer. Eerie day, Alavini May. More folkses had oughtn't to been hidden by that silencing kind of dern maimer disease of by and which you tell me your good man there is tookened with. I hear so many losery, wildery, damn flying, crazery, goddamn fothery, foamery, goosepity, gospity eyed, slandering, accusian, falsy, lying, untrue, dishonesty, pokey eyed, Jim Crody, proused, proudified, proud, hispendy, blabbering, bleeberty mouth, loserly lip, every street I walk. And here and every place I go and pass and come to look and to listen that I'd feel and I'd just about know it for sure and for certain I'd walk on into old sweet 
heaven if I ever did or do on a purpose or by blind accident stumble into any damn place where most folks goes and lives by my good book and my bibbly bible of sweet old silence. Well, it's more on the same subject, but considering the limitations of the Little Sandy Review, which is not very big anyway in handwriting, in red and blue at the end of this typewritten letter was a slogan which became a household word in our household, the Malvina Reynolds household. Cookies talks louder than words. <laughs> Dear Vinny, next letter. Dear Vinny, your Oatmealia's current F&D cookies made a bigger hit and a bigger splash around here in my 79 BSY hospitality ward here than all our added efforts and energies and forces a bookie song making did make. I just stood here and handed your shoebox around and they've spoken to all my creeds and my breeds in here lots plainer than all my sung and unsung words ever or lipped by man. I see now part ways how it is that it must be all of them little old crispy brownerish damn things I see you women folks run in on back out of my BSH warty floor here that keeps every single damn solitary one of my hoppers here hopping our next hops and jumping our next jumps like we do. It's those little old brown or roundish damn things you girly folks smuggle in at my old warty doors here which gives us dang guys our strength enough to try to jump another skip and to keep on a hopping one more old day without ever quite clearly stopping long enough here to ask ourselves all those hows and whys and those whoses and whiches in a very clearly conscious way. You hit down lots more on our old key secret of life around here than a hundred old Albert Einstein's and me and Tomer Edison's and ordinary worldly wiser men ever did hit. I'm still yelling how cookies talks loudest. I, me, Woody. Part two. Your little cookie things here prove to me how life its own self must dangle and jangle all around those damn pots and darn pans you females sweat and clink and cuss and cry and weep and slave your old lives away over. I sure didn't start in to guess how your frying pans and your sizzly skillets there had that old, old key secret of life itself which all of my wisest heads and brains has all and each one missed our guesses at and our guesses about. I didn't know which goes to show you you never know any damn thing about anything for sure and for certain on this planet Earth here. And so I'm still a saying as to by God and them darn damn little old bitsy brownified cookieful things of yours is one of my overlooked gifts of true living given genius with which God and Christ has both poured all of my females so damn full of. You ladies and yours little old brown or shoeboxes, I guess, is what keeps life jumping around here on my greedy, worldly damn planet. I'm ready to lay you 10,000 to one here that you females and your boxes of dang brown or cookies keeps my doctor and all in my studenty nursey ladies here and everywhere hopping our next long, lonesome hop in them same kind of half-blinded ways here I see my sickest ones hop. But my real problem that stops me deady cold is this one. Just who fries your eatables for you lady folks? Just what gives you lady folks your everlasting powers to keep on frying and a sizzling like you do? Just what gives you lady folks your everlasting powers to keep on a frying and a sizzling like you do? Just what power is it that gives you this kind of energizing power? Jesus and God both knows, but I mean, I don't. Woody Guthrie.
As I mentioned, Woody Guthrie died in 1967, the summer of love of Huntington's disease. In 1968 and 1970, there were two very large tribute to Woody Guthrie shows held. Lots of different people participated. One was at Carnegie Hall in New York City, and one was the Hollywood Bowl in Los Angeles. California, I had the uh, honor and privilege of being part of the uh, Hollywood Bowl concert. And at that time, I was approached by Marjorie Guthrie, Woody Guthrie's widow, and Harold Leventhal, who administered to the Woody Guthrie estate, and they asked me to put some music to a Woody Guthrie lyric they had that they didn't have music to. It had never been done before. And I said I'd be glad to try it. Nora Guthrie has told me that the Woody Guthrie archives has 2,000 plus lyrics that they don't have music for. Nowadays, uh, Billy Bragg has made three albums of uh, Woody, his music and Woody Guthrie lyrics, and other people have too. But it hadn't been done at that particular time, 1970. And they also asked the actor Peter Fonda to read some of Woody Guthrie's prose writing from his novel, Seeds of Man. And what Peter Fonda was reading and what uh, I was dealing with in the lyric were sexy and erotic in their nature. They wanted to expand the image of what the public had of Woody Guthrie to include his sexy and erotic stuff. His novel, Seeds of Man, has a lot of eroticism in it and the style of Henry Miller and the writing of that day and some of his etchings and his, and his lyric, too. So I'm going to read now what Peter Fonda read that night uh, from Woody Guthrie's novel, Seeds of Man, and then sing the song, Woman at Home, with my melody and Woody Guthrie's lyrics. My body is naked now, and it was born naked. No matter how I dress up or undress, I am naked. The best and juiciest of humanly truths are naked truths. I feel the same way you feel about my naked places. None of my places feel a real best till I get them uncovered, unhid, stripped down, naked. In my most naked thoughts, I've always laid flat on my back on the beds of living leaves and grass, counting the tree buds with my hands and the night stars with my toes. Go ahead, use ribbon and lace to pull me toward you, and I'll use every trick of shadow and shaving to pull you closer towards me. Your face is already lifted toward the sky, and its light makes me wild and crazy for the touch and taste of you. Your hips can't make a motion which I can say I hate. Your blood can't run in a way which I will stop and send back. Your legs can't open in a way that I will arrest. Your thighs can't move in a way that I would lock up behind bars. I love to see you wiggle your patch of hairs in every kind of design, pattern, roll, sway, and twitch. I see and taste no sweat more honest than the drops you have enjoyed between your thighs. Your face looks its proudest, its finest, and gladdest this minute as you do roll here like I roll. This look, this half-smile across your face, this very minute, your hair shaking above my eyes makes me feel like a lost man getting found. song singers go around singing how bad are the men how sinful are the women i got a woman at home the gate is open for me i got a woman at home the door is open for me you singers go around and do the same old thing Run my women down your slick sliding string But I got a woman at home Arms open for me 
I got a woman at home. The blankets are open for me. You grizzly bear boys, you fall high flyers. You're 16 kids behind me in a passion fires. Got a woman at home. The sheets open for me. I got a woman at home. Arms open for me. I got a woman at a home. I got a woman at home. I got a woman at home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Woman at home. I got a woman at home. Whoa, yeah. Woman at home. I'm a high ballad man. I'm a folk singer too I sing about the good things men and women do I got a woman at home Arms open for me I got a woman at home The door is open for me I was first born singing in this big world Raised by the labor movements of a hundred pretty girls I got a woman at home The blankets are open for me I got a woman at home Arms open for me I got a woman at home I got a woman at home I got a woman I'm going to read a little bit from Woody Guthrie's column, Woody Says. He wrote for the People's World newspaper talking about lynchings. Stayed a few nights with an artist and painter by trade. He's got a mighty good picture of a lynching hanging on my right wall. I mean my right hand. And it shows you one man, a Negro man, already hung for excitement and entertainment. And another one being drug in and beat up with clubs and chains and fists and guns. So naturally, I can't think up no jokes for today. This painting is so real, I feel like I was at a lynching, and it somehow or other just takes all of the fun and good humor and good sport out of you. To sit here and realize people could go so haywire as to hang a human body up by a gallus pole and shoot it full of Winchester rifle holes just for pastime. It reminds me of the postcard picture they sold in my hometown for several years of showing you a Negro mother and her two young sons hanging by the neck from a ridge, river bridge. And the wild wind whistling down the river bottom and the rope stretched tight by the weight of their bodies and the rope stretched tight like a big fiddle string. Ain't no telling how many will march by the songs that have whistled through the ribs of the poor lynch victims. Have you ever seen a man tie a slipknot? 
Have you ever seen a man tie a slipknot? You know he whines and he whines, and after 13 times, Lord, Lord, he's got him a slipknot. Tell me, will that slipknot slip? No, it will not. Tell me, will that slipknot slip? No, it will not. It will slip around your neck. But it won't slip back again, Lord, Lord, that slips not. Tell me who is a vigilante man. Tell me who is a vigilante man. I keep on hearing that name all over the land. Tell me who is a vigilante man. Tell me what is a vigilante man. Tell me what is a vigilante man. Does he carry a sawed-off shotgun in his hand? Would he shoot his brother and sister down? Have you ever seen a man tie a slipknot? Have you ever seen a man tie a slipknot? You know he whines and he whines, and after 13 times... Lord, 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 he's got him a slipknot. Oh, the capitalists and the communists are divvying up the world, I guess it seems that way to me. And they both are democratic and out for liberty, but I think they're pulling the wool right over you and me. Live from your McCowkinen's Fur Peace Ranch is a co-production of the Fur Peace Ranch and the WOUB Center for Public Media. The concert producer is Vanessa Kalkinen. The radio series producer is Rusty Smith. Audio engineers Rusty Smith, Adam Rich, and Isaac Smith.
Hi, I'm Yorma Kaukonen. Welcome to Live from the Fur Peace Ranch. Country Joe McDonald formed Country Joe and the Fish while a student at Berkeley in the 60s. They signed to Vanguard Records in 1966 and in 1969 performed at Woodstock, a performance that included the legendary Fish Cheer. With the political directness of his lyrics, Joe was often asked to take part in politics and movements, but his reply was, he was the guy who sang the songs, pointed out the wrongs, not the guy who fixed them. In 2007, he perfected his tribute to Woody Guthrie's show, a mix of music and spoken word, and has since taken it around the country to great acclaim. He's also an old friend. Waters. This land was made for you and me. 
Nobody living can ever stop me As I go walking that freedom highway Nobody living can make me turn back This land was made for you and one last time This land is your land This land is my land From California to the New York Island From the Redwood Forest Gulf Stream waters, this land was made for you and me. Oh, this land was made for you and me. Well, that's Woody Guthrie's most famous song, his most well-known song, This Land is Your Land. Some people consider it to be the unofficial national anthem of the United States of America. I grew up with Woody Guthrie music. My parents had it on 78 RPM records when I was a little boy, those uh, breakable records that were around, discs before vinyl records came in. There was three discs put into an album, and the album was called uh, Songs from the Dust Bowl. In 1969, I recorded the first tribute to Woody Guthrie album that had ever been done, and I did it at Bradley's Barn in Nashville with some of the greatest country and western session musicians who were around that particular time. They'd recorded on all of the great country and western hits, and uh, they were familiar with the melodies, but they'd never heard of Woody Guthrie or his songs. In 2001, I was asked by the John Steinbeck Center in Salinas, California, if I would do a live performance to accompany a Smithsonian exhibit of Woody Guthrie memorabilia coming to their museum there, and I said I'd be glad to do that. So I um, went uh, around my archives thinking about Woody Guthrie and picking out songs that were my favorites and uh, looking for stuff, thinking about Oklahoma. My father was born in Oklahoma and an Oklahoma cowboy like Woody Guthrie and uh, a Dust Bowl refugee too, rode on the freight trains. And, and I put together this... Um, this tribute, which is made up of songs by Woody Guthrie, songs about Woody Guthrie, a little bit from Jody Guthrie, one of his sons, um, a song, and a little bit from my father's autobiography, talking about Oklahoma, and some prose writings from Woody's autobiography, and um, his column that he wrote for the newspaper. So uh, without further ado, I'll just keep on going. This song is called Every Time His Songs Are Sung, written by a guy named Barry Lee Maris, a singer-songwriter from the San Francisco Bay Area. And he had a, a restaurant and a bar called the Blue Heron. I used to go out there and uh, perform uh, in his little supper club thing out there. It's a little tiny town between Guerneville and Jenner-by-the-Sea. If you blink your eyes when you go through it, you'll miss it. But uh, he, uh, wrote a, he wrote, uh, read a book he turned me on to songs that he'd written that I thought I might be interested in, and he read Elizabeth Partridge's fantastic book about Woody Guthrie's life. came out about 10 years ago. Elizabeth Partridge's mother was Dorothea Lang, who took all those great photographs of the Great Depression, and uh, she lives in Berkeley, and uh, he read the book, and he wrote this song about Woody Guthrie's life, and so I'll sing it for you now. Every time his songs are sung by Barry Maris. In the 
town of Okima in the Oklahoma hills on a hot cloudless July day when the weather almost kills. Nora had a baby, Charlie had a son. Now Woody has a birthday every time his songs are sung. Woody was a loner, he loved to read and write. He loved a good time story, boys, who kept him up all night. But his mom got sick and his sister died and his daddy's luck run low. And at 14 years of age, Woody Guthrie hit the road. Then Charlie moved to Pampa on the dusty Texas trail. Woody got him a drugstore job selling bootleg ginger ale. He met a guitar picker who taught him how to play. And Woody ain't stopped singing ever since that day. Oh, the dust blew hard and heavy on that little Texas town. Woody grabbed a guitar, he was California bound. He crossed the migrant checkpoints where they turned the Okies back by riding empty freight trains and hobo in the track. But Joe Wilson Guthrie's gone again. Probably somewhere out on the road again. Baby with his head and home again. But then again, everywhere the Woody went was home to him. Catch a ride to Pampa, sing another song. Talk a mom and grandpa, wonder what went wrong. Kiss the wife and kids hello, then sing them your soul long from the New York Islands to the California line. He sang the songs his mother sang when she was just a girl. He sang the songs the soldiers sang as they tramped around the world. He sang like the Odelin Brakeman, he sang like Cotton Eye Joe, he sang in hobo jungles, even sang on the radio. Then Woody looked around him, up and down the road. He saw his fellow travelers with a heart and a heavy load. So he changed the words to a few old songs, he changed his point of view. He said, from now on, struggling friends, I'm singing just for you. So would he hit the highways, wherever they might lead. He wrote and sang of hunger, of poverty and greed. He sang of this land's beauty, from her mountains to her trees. He said he could only write as much as he could see. Now Woody Guthrie's gone again, he's out there rambling round. He's probably in your schoolyard or on your old playground. He's probably at your job of work, in your heart or on your tongue. Now Woody has a birthday every time his songs are sung. Woodrow Wilson Guthrie's gone again. Probably somewhere out on the road again. Maybe Woody's heading home again, but then again, everywhere the Woody went was home to him. Get your ride to Pampa, sing another song. Talk a mom and grandpa, wonder what went wrong. Kiss the wife and kids hello, then sing them your so long from the New York Islands 
to the California line. Well, in uh, Barry Maris's song, he talks about Woody Guthrie getting a job selling bootleg ginger ale, but in Woody Guthrie's sometimes fictitious autobiography, Bound for Glory, he talks about selling root beer, Woody Guthrie. I got a job selling root beer. It was just a big barrel with a coil running around inside of it, and it cost you a nickel for me to pull the handle. Lesson, you was a personal friend of mine, in which case I would draw you off a mug for free. Prohibition was on, and folks seemed like they were dry. The first day I was there, the boss comes around. He says, here's your day's pay. We pay every day here because we may have to close up any day now. Business is rushing good right now, but nobody can tell what's going to happen. Another thing I want to show you about is this little door down here under the counter. You see that little door? Well, you push this little trigger just like that. And you see that door comes open, and inside, as I suppose you can see, are some little bottles on those little shelves. They are two ounces. They are patented medicine, I believe. It's called Jamaica ginger, or just plain Jake. It is a mixture of ginger and alcohol, and the alcohol is about 99%. <laughs> so now, in case anybody comes in with their thumbnail busted or their ankle sprung, or has got the hoof and mouth disease, or the epizootic, or is feeling sick and poorly and got 50 cents cash money on them, get the 50 cents, reach down here and give them one of the little bottles of Jake. Be sure and put the money in the register. While I worked there only about a month, I saved up $4 in the boot. I got inside view of what the human race was drinking. You couldn't tell no more about the rot gut called whiskey than you could about the Jake. It was just about as poison. Lots of people fell over dead and was found scattered here and yonder from different kinds of whiskey poisoning. I hated prohibition on that account. I hated it because it was killing people, paralyzing them, causing them to die like flies. I've seen men sit around and squeeze that old pink canned heat through an old dirty rag, get the alcohol drained out of it, and drink it on down. The papers carry tales about men that drank radiator alcohol and died from rust poisoning. Others come down with the beer head. That's when your head starts swelling up and it just don't quit. Usually you take the beer head from drinking home brew that ain't made right, like it's fermented in old rusty cans like garbage cans, oil drums, gasoline barrels, and slop buckets. They even had a kind of beer called Old Chalk that was made with throwing everything under the sun into an old barrel, adding the yeast and water and sugar to it and letting her go. Biscuit heels, cornbread scraps, potato leavings, and all sorts of table scraps went into this beer. It's a whitish, milky, slicky-looking bunch of crap, but especially down in Oklahoma, I've seen men drive 15 miles out into the country just to get a halt of a few bottles of it. The name Chalk came from the Choctaw Indians. I guess they just naturally wanted to celebrate somewhere or another and thought a little drink would fire them up so they'd break loose, forget their worries, and have a good time. When I was behind the counter, men had come in and purchased purchase Bay Rum, and I'd get a look into their puffy, red-speckled faces and their bleary, batty eyes that looked but didn't see, that went shut but never slept, that closed but never rested, dream but never arrived at a conclusion. I would see a man come in and buy a bottle of Coca-Cola, buy a bottle of rubbing alcohol, go outside, mix it half and half, drink it on down, wheeze for a few seconds, and then waddle on the way. One day, my curiosity licked me. I said I was going to taste a bottle of that Jake for myself. Man ought to be interested. 
I dried up about a half a mug of root beer. It was cold and nice, and I popped the stopper out of one of the little bottles of Jake, and I poured the Jake into the root beer. When that Jake hit that beer, it commenced to cook it. And there was seven civil wars, and two revolutions broke out inside of that mug. <laughs> the beer was trying to tame the Jake down, and the Jake was trying to eat the beer up. They sizzled and boiled and sounded about like bacon frying. The Jake was chasing the little bubbles, and the little bubbles was chasing the Jake, and the beer spun like a whirlpool in a big swift river. It went around and around so fast it made a little funnel right there in the middle. I waited about 20 minutes for it to settle down. Finally, it was about the color of a new tan saddle and about as quiet as it would get. So I bent over it, stuck my ear down over the mug. It was spewing and crackling like a machine gun. But I thought I'd best to drink it before it turned into a water spot or a dust storm. I took it up and took it down. It was hot and dry, gingery and spicy and cloudy and smooth and threatening rain or snow. I took another big swallow, my shirt come unbuttoned, and my insides burnt like I was pouring myself full of homemade soapy dishwater. I drank it all down, and when I woke up, I was out of a job. Well, you just can't separate um, Woody Guthrie and his uh, songs and his drawings and his writings from the time that he lived in, a time in this country when the economy just completely fell to pieces and it couldn't get put back together again. People lost their jobs, their homes, uh, their businesses, they lost everything they had. It got so bad that the banks ran out of money and they couldn't get no more money and uh, so they just uh, closed up their doors, went out of business and if you had money in that bank you were just out of luck. Another thing that happened at almost exactly the same time was a great drought as they called it back in those days or a drought as we would call it now came across the Midwest and into the South. They had given away land in Oklahoma for homesteaders for free and uh, 160 acres per family. People had gone out there by the thousands and they'd, they'd plowed up that prairie land for the very first time ever. And then uh, a drought came, or the drought as they would call it, and it dried up that topsoil and uh, it didn't rain for years and years. It, didn't, it rained a little tiny bit, but not enough. And then the wind would pick up that, uh, that topsoil and it would blow it for miles. You'd see it coming, you'd think it was a thunderstorm or a fog bank, but it wasn't moisture or water particles. It was dirt and it was dust. It would pile up one, two, three, four feet high in places. It just covered over cars and everything. At one point it uh, blew all the way to New York City from Oklahoma, 1,600 miles. So people had nothing to live for where they were. They headed off by the thousands uh, looking for a job of work, a hot meal, a better way of life. And this is called a talking dust bowl. Because that's what they call that part of the country, the dust bowl. Oklahoma, Arkansas, Tennessee, down into Texas. They call it the dust bowl.
Well, back in 1927, I had a little farm and I called that heaven and the price is up. The rain come down, hauled my crops all into town. I got the money, bought clothes and groceries, fed the kids and raised a big family. But the rain quit, the wind got high, black gold dust storms filled the sky. I traded my farm for a Ford machine, I poured it full of this gasoline, started rocking and rolling across the deserts and mountains out to California. Yonder on a mountain road, a hot motor and a heavy load. I was going pretty fast, wasn't even stopping. Bouncing up and down like popcorn, a popping had a breakdown. Sort of a nervous bust down. Mechanic fella there charged me five bucks. Said it was engine shrivel. Well, way up yonder on a mountain road, way up yonder in the piney wood, I give that rolling forward a shove. Gonna coast just as far as I could, commence to rolling. Big enough speed, come a hairpin turn, and I didn't make it. Well, man alive, I'm telling you that the fiddles and the guitars really flew. That Ford took off like a flying squirrel, flew halfway around the world, scattering furniture and children all over the side of that mountain. Well, we got to California, so dad come broke, so dad come hungry that I thought I'd choke. I bummed up a spot or two. The wife fixed up some taters, too. Poured the kids full of it. Mighty skinny kids look like a tribe of thermometers are running around. Lord, man, I swear to you, that surely was mighty thin stew, so damn thin. I really mean you could read a magazine right through it, see pictures of beautiful cars, beautiful people. You know, I always have thought, and I always have figured, if that stew had been just a little bit thinner, some of these here politicians could have seen through it. This is live from Yorma Kalkinen's Fur Peace Ranch. This concert, featuring Country Joe McDonald, recorded June 16, 2012.